0: what's there to talk about?
1: You were, when we were walking, you said positive feelings are the cause of suffering. And, well, how did you say? Negative feelings? Reversion, attraction. And neutral feelings are the cause of suffering? So, how is there a way to be other than
2: suffering? Sort of
1: leaning towards something or away from something or neutral?
0: So, we can have something arise, and when we know it in awareness, then there isn't the reactivity towards it so we can watch the contact we can watch the vedana and we can watch the reactivity towards it but we can all of that can be something that we know in awareness that's equanimous yeah but that equanimity is not a spaced out equanimity that's a present equanimity which is different yeah so the neutral vedana often is the cause for us spacing out, disappearing, wanting to go find something that's much more exciting. You know? um, but when we're watching this arise in our mind, then what's happening is, is there's a moment of non-reactivity. When there's no reactivity, there's no grasping, there's no aversion, there's no ignorance. It's just arising. When it arises, it's known, it's seen, and it ends, there's no suffering. So, you know, this whole practice is something that we can, we, can, we can do the whole thing in the present moment. It's not a, you know, a, um, a future thing. It's not, a, it's not something that's happening out there. It's what's happening right here. And we can watch. It's like popcorn, you know. There's this and this and this and this and this. And with every contact, there's a reactivity towards it. There's a Vedana and there's the possibility of grasping or aversion or spacing out. But that's where we can cut it. Because that possibility doesn't mean that it has to be there. If there's desire, we don't have to follow it. We can just know it. When we know desire, that is the moment of seeing the mind seeing the mind. The mind seeing the mind is the cessation of suffering. Is that clear? Yes. Okay. okay. Indeed. I mean I feel like I just ran a marathon of I mean it, i mean absolutely it is a workout. But you know like the, the what's the alternative? You know? You know the alternative is to falling into these habits of following what we, we like and, and pushing and pulling and away from what we don't like. And so, you know, when we're wanting to move out of suffering then there's two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that causes more suffering, and there's the suffering that causes the end of suffering. And this kind of meeting, you know, what's arising is the suffering that causes the end of suffering. And, you know, our habits of escape or habits of addiction or habits of ignorance are the is the suffering that causes more suffering. But you know, absolutely, easy ain't on the ticket. <laughs>
1: Emptiness has something to do with uh, the four truths? realizing
0: emptiness, meditating on emptiness. Emptiness is the realization that there isn't anything with uh, a permanent, um, fixed identity. That everything comes as a result of conditions coming together. Okay, so when you look at this, what is this? What is it? all right it's a glass but if i turn it upside down it's a buddha stand okay if i hit it over somebody's head it's a weapon if i use it on the floor and roll it or if i use it with dough it's a rolling pin okay so its designation is dependent on its use and it's dependent on the association that i have with it if i stick the flowers in here it's a vase so glass is a construct but it's not a permanent fixed identity. And if I change the way I relate to it, then its identity shifts. All right, now, what the reason why this is valuable is because, you know, if somebody had taken this and and smashed it over somebody's head that you love, if you saw this, likely chances is that you're gonna feel extremely agitated. But when you practice meditation, you can recognize that the agitation is not because of the glass. It's because of the associations with the glass, the memories connected to what happened around somebody else using the glass. It's not in the glass. So when we get that sense that there isn't anything fixed in anything that we're experienced, then we have the ability to start picking it apart and begin to see well, where is the actual problem? It's not in the glass. It's in the memories, association, and trauma associated with what happened and the way it was used according to one particular instance. That gives us tremendous leverage in the way that our mind conceives and perceives things. When we have that ability to move and shift and change how we're relating to something, then we're not so stuck in the one designation that we are associated with it. You know, you can take anything and, you know, you can have a very pleasant connection with it. And then it can shift. I mean, there's a classic story. Menindraji was one of um, Joseph and Jack's, actually, Deepama's teachers. And Menindraji had a sweet tooth like you cannot imagine. And so he loved Bengali um, sweets, which are like sweeter than pure sugar, if you could have something that's sweeter than pure sugar. And his mind was absolutely obsessed with Bengali sweets so you know we have many things that we can do with practice to work with the kinds of things that we get stuck on and he tried all of his tricks and then decided he was going to get a pound of Bengali sweets and eat them very mindfully and he did And after that, Bengali sweets did not have a pleasant association any longer. (laughs) So that's true with most things. You know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is also highly conditioned, and it can shift. So, in one instance, Bengali sweets was extremely pleasant, and after this particular practice, it was no longer pleasant.
3: About what you're saying about emptiness, the opposite of that, permanence. So nothing is permanent, everything is constantly in a state of change. And um, going about what you were saying earlier about living externally, reacting to constant external influences and so forth, you know, we have two choices. You know, life is like uh, the ocean and tides come and go. And we have two choices. We can either resist the tide, in which turn in turn, we'll drown, or we can learn to cultivate uh, a sense of equanimity, and learn to ride with the tide. As long as we recognize that, you know, as far as tides go and so forth, it's it's, it's a pattern of up and down, up and down. You know, when we're down here, we realize that that's not going to stay that way forever. You know, eventually it's going to go back up. But when we're up here, you know, what she's saying about the suffering of the end of change, or the suffering of the end of suffering you know, what that means is that we're up here, we're not going to stay up there. That's going to change too eventually. So that's where it helps to cultivate a sense of equanimity, to be good in all those circumstances.
1: So I really appreciated the exercise of um, of pleasure, displeasure, and, and uh, neutrality, because, yeah, the, the knowledge is just, it, it's an amazing, fun story, but when I was walking, I actually sensed that, right? I mean, I been walking on the same floor, and sometimes I like it, like it, or I could be walking and smelling the same smell, and sometimes I like it when they did, and sometimes I was neutral. And those were such small little things, I thought, wow, if I paid this much attention all the time, I'd see how much everything fluctuates, even states that I think are pretty constant. Mm-hmm. So it's very good practical exercise. I really enjoyed it. Well, yeah, something that doesn't bother you one day, or you, know, you really enjoy, can really irritate you the next day for no apparent reason. I think too because your story you know was sort of conditioning to, to get away from um, the obsession with the sweets, but for me part of the practice was a conditioning of just what you were just kind of describing right to not to, not, um, to get away from
3: A sense of
0: awareness. But I think this, you know, this statement, the mindset outside is the origination of suffering. As soon as there's any movement that is inclining towards something or away from something, that that movement, it doesn't matter what the object is, and it doesn't matter whether it's pleasure or displeasure, that movement, that's the origination of suffering. So to get that, you know, to really get that, to get what that means means that we need to be still and not moving. Awareness needs to be still and not moving. So everything is changing. The objects are changing. The sense contact is changing. But there isn't a following, you know, a moving out towards it or a recoiling back away from it. Which means then that we need to be able to be steady in the presence of pleasure and in the presence of pain. It's not for wimps. (laughs)
1: was just being and because the practice was on every second identifying am I enjoying it or not enjoying it or neutral towards it I didn't it didn't give me um, time for the rest of the story to fill in. You know like what to do about it which again is part of that I think cutting that next step that is it's really important right
0: so you know this whole process of not moving is obviously you know that's the Arahants are doing that okay people who are not Arahants are still practicing with it alright but where we can cut it is we can watch the desire. We can move, we can see the mind moving towards pleasure, we can see the mind moving away from displeasure, but we don't need to act further from that point. And that's where we can all cut it. We can watch it arise, we can see it beginning to take a root, but then we can still have a choice what we do at that point, and that's where we can cut it. So it's helpful to get a sense of where in this whole kind of um, the, where, where the stuff arises and how we can dismantle it. There's an amazing book, Upasika um, Key. She's a, a lay person who um, is an Arahant. Tanisro's got his stuff on his website. I've got links to her work on the Awakening Truth website. Absolutely ferocious, you know, about, you know, don't move from that. Place, you know, it's not like all oh, be nice and friendly and cuddly. It's like. <laughs> Who's this person? Key, Key Nyanen Kenyan. It's on the website, on the Awakening Truth website under under books. She's impre- um, unbelievable, just really clear.
1: Um, the the movement that you're talking about is, is that it's the movement that's more like grasping, not the movement that's more like locomotion, right? Yes. Okay. I and that's how desire, that desire, yes. that's how it moves into
3: the desire around that movement of grasping. That's right. Not so much trying to get somewhere, or trying to right. revert getting somewhere, just holding on while everything's changing around you. Exactly. Or, or, uh, yes, reaching out to something that's okay.
0: Precisely. Yeah. Because we have to move our bodies, you know. We need to. We need to wash. We need to walk. We need to feed ourselves. We need to toilet ourselves. We need to rest. We have to do that. It's not that motion. It's the movement towards wanting things to be some way and not wanting them to be other ways. So with 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 vedana, often with vedana comes the desire. But the where we can cut it is is that desire then goes into grasping, and that's the link where we can cut it. So all of this, this cycle of dependent origination, is the, is the deep looking into the second noble truth of where the origination of suffering actually comes.
1: And the mind, when it comes to know itself, it knows itself by the grasp
2: it? And it becomes, it becomes aware by the movement?
0: No. Mind knows the mind because it knows the difference between the object of the mind and the knowing of the object of the mind. So, Grasping is an object of mind. What knows grasping is not full of desire. Okay? So, in the space, we have this space. We're here sitting, there's cushions, there's color, there's lights, there's a wooden floor, there's sound, there's sight. We've got incense still. Okay? But there's the space. So, most of our life, we're habituated to the objects, and we are fixated on getting it right the right decorations, the right furniture, the right feeling, and we forget the space. So obviously having a lovely space is conducive. You know, I feel well in a lovely space that is well appointed, that is well thought through, yeah? But whether it's a lovely space or a horrible space, there's still space in the space, yeah? Yeah? So the floors are going to change, the cushions we're going to take away, we're going to put the chairs away, we'll clean up the food, we'll turn off the lights, I'll stop speaking. But the space isn't changing. So we don't recognize the space. We recognize the objects. Our attention is fixated on objects. But you don't have to go to Thailand to see the space. You don't have to shave your head, you don't have to take precepts, you don't have to wear robes in order to see the space. You need to wake up that you can place your attention in the space and that there's a value in doing that. Because if we just put our attention in the space, what happens to the objects? None of them disappear, but our relationship with them changes. They're not grabbing in the same way as when we're focused on them. Can you see that? Well, what is the difference? The space is right here, and it's right here all of the time, and it goes with us everywhere we are. And the space isn't just the space in the room. The space is the quality of knowing that's inside of our own mind. But we don't see the space. So part of the practice is waking up to the space as well as learning how to relate to the objects. Can you see? You know, so if something absolutely spectacular beautiful, like the image of the most beautiful person you can ever imagine, walked in through the door, would you notice the space? <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, is
0: that question <laughs> And likewise, if somebody came in with a shotgun, how many of us would notice the space? Okay? because we have the associations of fear and needing to protect people and there's some people here that we really love and how do you take care and all the rest of that the space doesn't change but you see when a person really understands the practice they have the choice they are not driven by the object and the associations with the object and that's where there's freedom Because there's no way that any of us would navigate a person with a machine gun walking in the room with peace and equanimity unless we had another reference point that we can let our attention rest in. I'm sure you, maybe you haven't heard this story, but there's a story, whether it's true or not, but it's a great story. There was some warring person who was going around conquering lands and people and, and he was doing it by violence and terror. And so his reputation preceded him. So everyone, when they knew he was coming, would flee because he would, he would rape, he would plunder, he would steal, he would burn. He would completely decimate any place that he went to. So he we went to an area, and there was a big monastery and was filled with monks, and all of the monks went and fled to the forest except for the abbot. So this warmongering general comes in and finds this abbot, this small guy hanging out, and he was incensed. Don't you know who I am? I can run through you a thousand times without batting an eye. And the abbot said, An eye, sir, can be run through a thousand times without batting an eye. And the general bowed and left. Now you can't fake that. <laughs> But that is the potential of this practice. It's not about just having a little bit more peace in our lives. It's a radical departure, a radical kind of freedom, which absolutely is not conditioned by anything in the world. You know, that's why when I was saying it, it's a different kind of independence than the kind of independence that's celebrated on the 4th of July. This is radical independence. And we are where we are. We start where we're at. We do what we need to do. And for most of us, it's not easy. you know. Not easy is not on the ticket. But the question is, is it worthwhile? Well, the question is, what is the alternative? Is suffering generally an alternative? Is that a viable alternative when you have the sense of what not suffering actually is? Yeah, I prefer suffering. <laughs> Interesting question.
1: So I mean, how in practical ways, how do you see the space when you're meditating?
0: So the way you see the space when you're meditating is when you are aware of fear, what knows fear isn't frightened. What knows fear is not frightened. When you're aware of anger, what knows anger is not angry. When you're aware of desire grasping, lust, what knows those is not any of them. The quality of knowing is like a mirror. It's clear, but it actually doesn't take on the characteristics of what it reflects. That's knowing the space in the mind. Does that help? Wow. Oh. <laughs> hey. Just kind of creating a distance between... Bante, can you explain it differently?
1: No, nope, that's the way it was going <laughs> I think there are tools when you're starting to be a friend to yourself. So trusting that the knowing truly is going to be there um, in that way. Um, so there's compassionate practices to give ourselves a little kindness give ourselves that something. Um,
3: and focusing on the breath for some people. I think one way I was taught that it was just for me was to like watch your mind as a science, neutral scientific observer. And that way when thoughts come out, don't necessarily engage them, but watch them observe them. And then watch them maybe disappear. But it's like you said, it's like popcorn. Another really one comes up over here. You know, don't engage that, just watch it and watch it go away. Well but then another one comes up. It's just learning to be mindful and watchful. Just being patient with yourself.
0: But the other thing that helps is community. And the way that community helps is is that when you're in community of people who are also practicing this way, people can help remind each other. And that is invaluable. You know, so we get stuck in our loops, and somebody can say, that's not the whole story. You know, or you get stuck into a kind of a self-critical thing, and somebody says, well, actually, when I look at you, I see a lot of beauty. And so the way we can support each other in community is something which is a part of the path that needs to be cultivated to learn how we can meet together and be together and get into each other's skin in a way where we can come close enough to say, "I see you." And what's looping is not what I see. So expanding on what you said. You know, I found it easier to meditate on a virtuous thought.
1: So what is a virtuous thought? It's anything that makes you feel virtuous rather than focusing on the breathing. So if you're focusing on the breath, well, okay, the feeling, de-stressing goes away once you to stop focusing on the breath. But I found that if you start to meditate on virtuous thoughts, such as compassion, as you mentioned, it kind of stays with you for a long time she's to, you to, to your tissue. So um, to be very helpful and So there are there 21 meditations of the Labyrinth? Are
3: you familiar with that? The well, Labyrinth in our tradition, the Tibetan tradition, is uh, the path, the sage is the path of the light. And the way we work with that is um, it's generally condensed down into 14 verses. And we meditate it it's sequential. So when we meditate that, we focus on one particular verse and the different aspects of that verse teaches. Um, would you like me to share the verses?
2: Would you like me to share? Sure. Is that okay? The yeah, I had a uh, standard issue now. Yeah. <laughs> a thousand
3: books in here. Wow. Okay, the Lomba basically is... was. Shakyamuni Buddha had 84,000 teachings, and had the consolidation of all 84,000 teachings into a sequential path. The foundation of all good qualities. The foundation of all good qualities is the kind and perfect pure guru. The correct devotion to him or her is the root of the path. By clearly seeing this and applying great effort, he's bless me to rely upon him or her with great respect. Understanding that the precious freedom of the three births found only once is greatly meaningful and is difficult to find again, Please bless me to generate the mind that ceasingly day and night takes its essence. This life is as impermanent as a water bubble. Remember how quickly it decays and death comes. After death, just like a shadow follows the body, the results of black more white karma follow. Find your firm and definite conviction in this. Please bless me to always be careful to abandon even the slightest negativities and accomplish all virtuous deeds. Seeking sensory pleasure is the door to all suffering. They are uncertain and cannot be relied upon. Recognizing these shortcomings, please ask me to generate a strong wish for bliss and liberation. Led by this pure thought, mindfulness, alertness, and great caution arise. The root of the teachings is keeping the Pati Maksha vows. vows this please bless me to accomplish this essential practice. Just as I fall into the sea of Samsara, so have all other migratory beings. Please ask me to see this, train the Supreme Bodhicitta, which is compassion, and bear the responsibility of freeing migratory beings. Even if I develop only bodhichitta, but I do not practice the three types of morality, I will not achieve enlightenment. With my clear recognition of this, please ask me to practice the bodhisattva vows with great energy. Once I pacify distractions to wrong objects and correctly analyze meaning of reality, please ask me to generate quickly within my own mind stream the unified path of calm abiding and special insight. Having become a pure vessel of, by training in the general path, please ask me to enter the holy gateway of fortunate ones, the supreme Vajra Vehicle. At that time, the basis of accomplishing the two attainments is keeping pure vows and samaya. As I become firmly convinced of this, please bless me to protect these vows and pledges like my life. Then, having realized the importance of the two stages, the essence of the Vajrayana, by practicing with great energy, never giving up before sessions, please bless me to realize the teachings of the Holy Guru. Like that, the Gurus have show the Noble Path and the spiritual friends who practice it have long lives. Please bless me to pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances. In all our lives, never separated from perfect gurus, may enjoy the magnificent dharma by completing the qualities of the stages of the past, and quickly attain the state of Ajahn or whatever. there. But what we do, essentially, we take one of those verses and meditate on different aspects of that particular verse and their teachings that correlate to each verse.
0: So when I started this morning, I was talking about the difference between the doctrine and the path. The doctrine gives a conceptual framework of what we're doing and where we've gone and where we've come from, how we're getting there. And the path is the application, the way of actually putting things into practice. It's the nuts and bolts of what we do and what our practice consists of in order to support our understanding. And so today on a retreat like this, I wanted to emphasize the path rather than emphasize the doctrine. I wanted to give people kind of tools and skills, resources to work with so that you'd have ways of dealing with things as they are arising in your own practice, in your own life. And yet the doctrine, or the kind of framework, helps support. So when we're listening to these long rim teachings, you know, one of the things that they're talking about is the preciousness of the human birth and the context of the fact that life is absolutely uncertain. So most of us live with this kind of illusion that we're going to get old and have a retirement when we're 70 or 65, and that we've got from now until then to plan. And the truth is, is is that none of us know if we're gonna make it to the end of the day. But we don't live without awareness. We live with the illusion that we have a long life. And so if we trade out the illusion for the contemplation of the reality, it tends to focus our priorities. And when our priorities are focused, then it tends to remind us of why practice is so important. And when we have that sense of urgency, it gives us context for finding the courage to make good choices when we're faced with a whole spectrum of irrelevant but urgent things that are pressing on us. So one of the reasons why the doctrine can support is it can put a framework in place that helps us stay focused with our attention about where our priorities and where our attention needs to rest.
3: Some people fall in the trap of wanting to put off practice until the circumstances change, like the children are grown and they retire or what have you. But they're only fooling themselves. <laughs> and it's very easy to postpone things indefinitely.
0: So one of the blessings that can happen when you've got monks and nuns and lay people practicing together is you've got people who are committed to their whole lives to realizing that... The potency of the teachings and then everybody can pick up on that in a way that is relevant in their own circumstances now I've certainly known monks and nuns who don't have the same kind of realization or dedication that some lay people do so it's not as if having robes and precepts and shaven head gives us a, a monopoly on that kind of aspiration you know Deepama was one of my first teachers and she never ordained she never took robes. She never shaved her head. And yet, she got clear that there wasn't anything in this world that was going to be able to ultimately satisfy her. She was done. She was so done. And so her attention was absolutely focused that the only possible avenue left was for her meditation. And every ounce of her powers her perfections her virtues her capacity her talents her gifts her karmic propensities went there and to beautiful result she had a daughter she had a grandson she had a house and she took care of her daughter and her grandson in her house but her priorities were not confused so one of the beauties of what can happen when you have people of different precept levels staying in relationship with each other is is that we can support each other in a positive way towards realization. How do you do that? I mean, you get up at four thirty. Mean, what is your day like? It changes depending on whether I'm in retreat mode or whether I'm in normal mode. You know, when I'm in retreat mode, I'm not sleeping lots. I'm probably sleeping five hours at most, and then the rest of the day is meditation, alternating sitting and walking. You know, sometimes I'll do some reading or listen to some guided meditation. But I'll be going into retreat mode during the Vasa. I'll have a month of retreat and then I'll have a couple months over the winter time. In the regular time, normal mode, is I do the best that I can according to circumstances. So when I'm traveling and on the road, it's it's tiring. You know, and when I'm in in different spaces, I'm needing to accommodate the people that I'm with. And, you know, sometimes I'm up late teaching or traveling or... I go teaching and I'm buzzing until 2 o'clock in the morning, and so it takes me a while to rest. So I do the best that I can. So I don't force myself into a, a fixed routine. I usually meditate between an hour and three a day. And, you know, I feel happiest when I can have rock time, you know, when I can go hang out with my rocks, because the rocks, like the Garden of the God rocks, for me that's like absolute easy access to an equanimous field of knowing that just receives and allows and knows everything that's arising and if i can spend two hours or three hours a day on rocks that is really nice (laughs) but life has a way of imposing itself and you know i spend hours a day on the internet writing emails and dealing this that and the next thing and planning and you know, organizing and communicating and posting things on Facebook and all the rest of that. But the basic practice is to be with what's arising and how I'm relating to it. And that basic practice is independent of our precept levels. Okay? So, that's true for all of us. And that's true for anywhere. And it doesn't matter if you're with your family or if you're in a board meeting or if you're on the street or if you're dealing with a homeless person or you're dealing with somebody who's strung out on drugs... What's happening right now and how are you related to it? And, you know, that basic movement of when I notice myself recoiling as a result of aversion, I catch that and I soften around it, I relax into it. And if I notice myself leaning forward into something because I'm grasping or desire, then I try and see that. And Occasionally I don't. And when I don't, it causes chaos, you know, it causes an unfortunate result. But my commitment is to waking up. My commitment is not to perfection. So, you know, if I catch myself looping around beating myself up, I cut it. Stop right there. Harmful behavior towards myself is not going to liberate me or anybody else from suffering. So in that moment, if I catch myself looping, that's the practice, to stop it right there. So present moment appropriate response is a universal koan that I can take with me, whether I'm traveling, whether I'm on retreat, whether I'm in long periods of silence, whether I've been up till two, whether I'm sleeping, whether I've been activated. You know, when I left Colorado Springs, it was unsettling for me. I mean, I would say that was probably an understatement that is worthy really of the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> But I was unsettled, so I didn't need to make it worse by making it something that I shouldn't be. You know, so I was just trying to be with unsettled. All right, I'm unsettled, so what does an unsettled person need? Present moment, present response. Not to overlay some idea of how it should be on top of what's actually happening. I mean, that is so humbling, but it is so true. Now, there are lots of reasons why I was unsettled. You know, and if I opened it all up and put it all on the table, there's an awful lot of room for compassion. There were some pretty remarkable things that this was all landing into. But at any moment, we do the best that we can. And when we blow it, we make amends. Start again. That's how I live. That's my life. And one of the things that's interesting about the way I've been living is, is that because it, the support system is growing, that it hasn't been that strong... You know, I'm constantly in interacting with people who don't have a clue who I am or what I'm doing or what my vows and precepts are or how I live or all the rest of that. All I have is the present moment. I don't have anything else. But that's the thing, is, is that it's enough. You know, sometimes I feel tired. I wish there was a little bit more stability. But the present moment is enough.
2: Emma, when you say you, you know, I've noticed too, just tiny, tiny bit, that when you catch yourself, is there any sense that time slows down just a little bit, that you, through practice, through different things, a funny, funny thing happened today, doing the walking meditation "Wow, this is great, because my legs hurt, my back hurts, and seemed, I'm just going to kind of do the meditation, and, and maybe not put as much as maybe I should into it, and, and what I found is, I learned actually how I walk. That you know, I have to lean slightly to the left to take the weight off my right leg and, and lean forward and it just seemed to me that there was a a real slowing down of time and I just laser focused on I didn't really know how I walked kind of a thing. And it, does that apply in the practice too where when you're meditating or, or that and, and much to much to what Venerable uh, Venable Lima said about watching Thoughts. It seems that that becomes easier if you can slow down time a little bit.
3: And well, you get to the point where, yeah, you you cultivate this sense where you're in real circumstances. If somebody pushes your buttons, okay? And usually, maybe your past reaction would be, okay, there it is, boom. You're just lay it on that guy. And um, but no, it does kind of slow down because you can watch that just start right there, and you can start watching that come up. And that's where our true essence of power is, is in that split moment of decision, of deciding how to react to something. So we do recognize that, and we have, to, we have a split-second choice. Are we going to go off in the sky, or are we just going <laughs> to let it go? You know? And yeah, so time does slow down, and you start recognizing that coming up, and you do recognize it does slow down.
0: I think also, you know, like when you first learn how to drive a car, you know, getting the stick shift and the steering and the brakes and the clutch and everything together, It's really, it feels overwhelming. You know, and watching the traffic patterns and the stop signs and all the rest of that. It feels like our attention is way overloaded. And then we get used to it, and then it becomes natural. So then we get used to all the movements of the physical body, the coordination of the eyes, the intention that's needed in order to navigate a stick shift car. And then you don't think twice about it. Okay? So it's not as if the, it's, it's as if, not so much that things have slowed down as is that we've gotten very comfortable with the variety of ways that our attention needs to move in order to navigate it in a way that it works and is safe. Yeah. And so, you know, what before was like a black box. You have a signal that goes through this black box and then there's an explosion. Well, the black box ends up having mirrors and windows and, and, and pathways in it so that we watch what's going on. And then we have signaling poises where we can make choices, where we can redirect it so that it goes out of the black box into something else. You know, so you know people who've got anger issues, rather than blowing at people, they can go outside and throw rocks or kick trash cans, or you know they've got mechanisms that signal that they're in a danger zone and they've got stuff that they need to release. But their clarity is, is they don't want to do it on another person. Yeah. So, and that part of that is, is body awareness, learning to read the physical signs. Now, some of this stuff, you know, there's very little <laughs> fuse. Like, you know, you hit, you hit the button and off goes the explosion. And the timing is really very narrow. But there's usually a decision point in there somewhere. And if you can strengthen that fuse by increasing the capacity to tolerate those very, very difficult feelings then in that you end up with more choice. And so, you know, certainly anybody who's done something that they really regret because the fuse was ignited and it blew up before they felt that they had any choice, they'd be motivated for wanting to find choice. Because feeling out of control in a way where you're hurting somebody is a completely powerless and very scary experience. So when you feel that you're unsafe, that's really scary. That is really scary, and so people are really motivated, or can be really motivated, to try and elongate the fuse so that they can insert more choice mechanisms in that process so that they're not doing stuff that they so deeply regret.
2: So what I'm hearing from you, then, is kind of, it's, rather than slowing down time, coming from an engineering background, what you're doing is increasing the sampling rate of, of, of the, the, the moments of time. So That's you,
0: right.
2: You're just chopping it up finer, and so now you have decision point at each point, rather than before you thought. Views true. That's right.
0: And part of that is increasing capacity. And increasing capacity is tolerating unpleasant feelings in the body. So one of the things about anger, and the reason why it's so volatile, is because there's some kind of a weird reptilian signaling that says that if you feel this stuff, the best thing to do is to dump it on whoever you can as fast as possible. (laughs) You know? And so we have to use our cognitive functions and our regret to know that whatever signaling that's coming from, not to listen to that. And the way to not listen to that is to tolerate the incredible, uncomfortable feeling of what it feels like when you're in a rage and you don't dump. <laughs> mm-hmm. So before you get there, what you can do is you can, you can cathart in a safe space, you know. You can go outside, or you can punch water, or you can curse a blue streak out in the open, or you can roll the windows up in the car and scream your head off so that nobody's being harmed. They're still releasing, but there it's not in a way where anybody's getting harmed by it.
3: In the Tibetan tradition, we have a, a major school of a thought called Lojong, which is called mind training or thought transformation. And that's it's a very, very practical means dealing with circumstances and it deals with changing these standards, actually changing the way we look at the story on a daily basis. And uh, there's something that we call the verses of thought transformation. That's a very practical thing to work with on a daily basis and one will take one particular verse and work with it that day just apply their circumstances and reflect there in that day and see how they reacted to things that may have come up. With the thought of attaining enlightenment for the welfare of all beings, we more precious than a wish-fulfilling jewel, or a constant practice only and dear. Whenever I am with others, I will practice seeing myself as the lowest of all, and from the very depths of my heart, I respectfully hold others as supreme. In all actions, I will examine my mind, and the moment of affliction arises, endangering myself or others, I will firmly confront and avert. it. Whenever I meet a person of bad nature, who is overwhelmed by intense negative suffering and energy, I will hold such a rail to endure as if I found a precious treasure. When others, out of jealousy, mistreat me with abuse, slander, and so on, I will practice accepting defeat and offer the victory to them. When someone i benefited and whom, in whom i place great trust hurts me very badly, I will practice seeing that person as my supreme teacher. In short, I will offer directly and indirectly every benefit and happiness to all beings my mothers. I will practice in secret, taking upon myself all their harmful actions and sufferings. Without these practices being defiled by the stains, the abel, the concerns, and by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, they will practice without grasping to release all beings from the bondage of the disturbing host of due mind and harmony. That's a very common thing work It's Now, what brought that to mind was your story of one of my lineage masters, his uh, eminence, the river of Bichet, who was the prisoner that you were referring to. And uh, he did not, like, he practiced this, it, it's what prevented him from losing it and being tortured every day. Explicable and you just did not a passion for his, his But that's just one thing that I've been doing, I've been on a basis. To be a really um, i private been basis. i um, Liz, you talk about, um,
1: Wednesday on Wednesday night, we talked about emotions coming up, and then our secondary sort of reactions to them. Could you talk about that relationship of those sort of things? How we work with
3: these often just
1: you know a fuse might be going, but there's a lot of other things for me going on at the same time that you alluded to all Wednesday night. And I was wondering if you had some ideas about trying to work.
0: So um, I'll just use myself as an example. I ended up with a kind of very twisted relationship with anger for reasons I don't need to go into. But for me, it was completely terrifying to experience anger. I felt absolutely scary. And so I had this suppressive mechanism around anger that would kick in before I had any awareness that it was operating So in that instance, what I needed to do was to give myself permission to tolerate anger. Because what would happen was, as I would get angry and not know it, go through the black box and I was exploding, and I had zero awareness of any of the process because it was in a suppressed mechanism until it was erupting out of my system. Okay? So in that specific conditioning, what was needed was to give permission to tolerate anger, to let it be conscious and to allow it into my awareness and feel it in my body so that I could learn how to stay present with it and then make more choices. So anger, with people, we tend to have two different strategies. One is mine, where you suppress it. The other is to dump it. So the suppressive types need to give permission to tolerate it. The dumping types need to learn how to restrain it. They need to learn how to shut the F up and keep it back and not punch and not kick and not scream and not holler to contain it and in containing it feel what happens as the body holds that heat with the suppressive types like me i had to give special permission go through special practices to allow it into my awareness which were itself terrifying it was terrifying absolutely terrifying you know and then as I developed more capacity to let it be in awareness, then I learned how to navigate it a little bit more skillfully. I mean, not great, but better, you know?
1: So in both cases, it sounds like you could, in both of those situations, use the body.
0: Absolutely. Like,
1: and, and so that's what you started us with today. So really, for starting medication, you were for me to really get centered and grounded in my body, and then try and start
0: absolutely and so people have this idea about meditation as you sit down you shut up and you just focus but you know if you've been sitting down for 10 hours in front of a computer screen you know probably the last thing that you need is to sit down what you need is actually to move and to walk and to allow things to come into balance and to feel some life force in your system to actually feel your body I mean many of us spend a large portion of our lives where we don't actually feel our body and so, you know, we need to be skillful with where we're actually at in order to have meditation be useful and productive. And so ten minutes of standing meditation, or qigong, before you sit down, can make a huge difference. Because when attention is actually immersed in the physical body, then you have the ground to work with what's there. And if you don't have any attention immersed in the physical body, or the body is so tense, it's like, you know, a piece of rubber, you know you have very little capacity and subtlety and flexibility, not with body, but with the mind, in terms of its ability to navigate what's actually happening and how to relate to it. So, when I kept on saying, we don't abandon the first foundation of mindfulness when we go to the other foundations, it's because the awareness, attention, immersed in the body is something that we can have and return to again and again and again and again and again and again and again again to the end of the path. And that gives us capacity. With all of this stuff, you know, what's actually happening and how am I relating to it? Because we can learn to recognize the body that's recoiling. We can learn to recognize the body that's leaning forward. You know, we can actually catch our mind states because we're attentive to our body. It's a mirror. Maybe one way to chop up those
1: screen fuses, like, you know, you were sort a Well, how do you chop up the fuse, right? But it seems like maybe that's, that's part of the way to check in. Well,
0: Exactly, and if you don't know how you feel, how does your body feel?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. It can tell you. A lot. It can tell I mean, you don't no, know, then
1: it's better not to act. <laughs> it's like, <no. laughs>
0: yeah, time out. You know, time out. I need some time out. I don't know. I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know how to respond to this question. Just give me some time out, and give me. You know, just let me feel what I need to say. You know, or I can't do this right now. You know, so part of our capacity in learning how to respond is to say, well, actually, I don't have it right now to deal with this. You know, so we don't put on ourselves the assumption that we're supposed to be wise and caring and knowing and intelligent and clear at every moment, under every circumstances, at all points of the day. We recognize that we're not and respond from that. It was huge learning in the community when the sisters began to realize that there's times when we don't have it to talk to each other to sort stuff out. It's not, it's not there's not enough ground. It's very friendly sound. Well, let's, um, let's do some loving-kindness meditation.
3: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.